Welcome to the Love is Viral show. I'm your host, Jeanette Schneider, the founder and CEO of Live Media and the creator of the Live Pocket Coach on the Apple App Store. Our premise at Live is simple. A healthier you today leads to a healthier world tomorrow. Our guests include neuroscientists, therapists, professors, coaches, authors, yogis, speakers, entrepreneurs, and those who believe that a bigger, better life can be found at the intersection of mindfulness and science. Join me as we nerd out with a little bit of soul. The Love is Viral show is a live media production. Samina Hadi Tabassum is a clinical associate professor at Erickson Institute, where she leads the Child Life Program and the Online Masters in Early Childhood Education Program. She teaches graduate courses in cognitive development, language development, and her research and publications focus on race, language, and culture. In this episode, we discuss human survival, from mirror neurons to epigenetics and all the science in between. We dig into how humans have evolved, why we need empathy more than ever to ensure our survival, and the move to a heterogeneous society. Let's dig in. Hi, this is Jeanette Schneider. Welcome back to Live. I'm here today with Samina Hadi Tabasan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm really excited to chat with you. Um, we um, had a conversation recently about um, our brains and how they've evolved and how they they work in correlation with our socialization and our empathy and the way we frame our social interactions. And I thought it was really fascinating. And I wanted to get you on and have a conversation because I think more now more than ever, it's really interesting to understand how our, our minds work and how we um, use our uh, the way we interact with others, our socialization, um, and, and empathy, especially during tough times when things are a little bit more difficult. I think more people are interested in how we've evolved as humans. So I'm curious, first and foremost, if you can share with me why this is interesting to you and, and what you'd want to share with others so we understand kind of from the beginning of time why our brains or how our brains were created in order to help us. Thank you. I'm currently a professor at Erickson Institute and I teach courses in cognitive development. And we are an institute that focuses on child development in particular. And when I teach this particular class, I start by talking about human evolution and how over time human beings have adapted to their physical environment and have developed many cultural conditions and tools, which has also then allowed their brain to develop and that today our brain is much larger than it was um, thousands of years ago, and that as human beings adapt and evolve, so does the human brain as well. And what we do know is that there is that relationship between environment and our DNA, right? So this question of nurture and nature is a question that I discuss all the time. And in particular, my students work with young children, and we get into a debate about you know, what causes that child to develop? Is it the child's environment or is the child already wired for learning? And so for example, if you think about a young infant that was just born, that infant is immobile, they can't move, they're dependent on these adults. We know that their auditory system kicks in and they can recognize mom's voice from in utero and as well as the voices of other adults in that environment. We also know that their vision is not intact yet and soon over time, they're going to develop their senses that they need to be able to then grow and develop um, in a very typical and healthy manner. 
What we also know is how does this young child then eventually become the sophisticated adult, right? How do children then learn to master some of the very sophisticated things that we do from thinking and learning to talking and so on? Um, so the question is then how does that child acquire those social meanings and cultural understandings? And so one of the things we do know with young infants is they tend to mirror the actions of the adults in their environment. And so this initial research around children and how children learn led to this whole world of the notion of mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are actually cells in our brain. So a neuron cell is a cell that's located in the brain that develops over time. And that what we do over time is that we create circuits in our brain and that these neurons are connecting with each other and they're building bridges and wires through dendrites and synapses and they're finding each other, right? And that's what allows us to do much more complex things as we get older. What we do know is that if you look at the MRI scans of young babies, that neural growth is the greatest in utero, in mother's womb. But then around ages three, four, and five, you know, there's an explosion of neural activity and neurons are finding each other and they're growing connections to each other. And it becomes a time when young children are very much sponges, right? They can learn multiple languages. They're able to think in creative ways and so on. We also know that infants in particular start mirroring those adults around them and that there is a whole network of neurons, what we call the mirror neuron network that's located in the parietal lobe of our brain. So our brain can be dissected into four different lobes and the parietal lobe is the lobe that's on top. And if I go interior, go inside the parietal lobe, there's a whole section of cells, which we call the motor cortex and that the mirror neurons are located within this motor cortex and that they connect our visual part of our brain, which is in the back, the occipital mm -hmm. part of our brain to our motor cortex. So they're connecting what we're perceiving visually to then the motor cortex, which controls our actions and movements. There's a whole network of neurons that are connected. They form a circuit and they're talking to us, right? They're, they're talking to our internal mind and conveying messages. And so the argument here is that a child may see that mom smile and they're visually perceiving that mother's smile and then they mirror that particular action, right? So they're looking at that image and then they are responding without really thinking at all, right? Because mm -hmm. infants are not into the deep intellectual thought processes. They're, they're not necessarily thinking deeply, they're not necessarily using knowledge per se, but they are imitating that particular action. So they learn to perceive first, and then they learn to imitate that particular action, which we call a mirroring effect. Um, we can also argue that the baby is tuning into that mother's actions, right? And trying to meet her in that same direction, that there's some kind of congruency that's occurring, that they're trying to be in sync with that other person that's in front of him or her. And so we see this in particular with young infants mimicking um, the smiles of the adults that they see around them, as well as the sounds. So we know that young children learn to what we call mouth map, that they look at the mouth of that adult and they're trying to map that sound that's coming out and that they're perceiving these sounds and they're 
taking statistics and they're trying to figure out, oh, these are the sounds of my language that are, you know, that are from my particular social environment, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of congruency in terms of like, this is how children learn languages, but this is also how they learn actions as well. And so the question is, okay, great. Infants use this part of our brain called a mirror neuron network. They're imitating adult actions. They're trying to understand how to be a citizen of that environment, right? Uh, and we also know that it allows them to develop attachments as well. If I see mom smile to me, then I, and if I smile back, it allows for that very deep attachment that I mm -hmm. need to be a healthy human being when I grow older. So there's that social and emotional aspect of mirroring something, right? Um, but then you get into this question of, am I just simply mirroring in action? So there was right. all this research that was done recently saying, okay, what's actually going on? So in the, in the last couple of decades, people have been experimenting on monkeys as well as human beings. And so there's kind of two different bodies of thought on this. There's one body of thought that says, yes, human beings are wired to mirror each other's actions, but it is simply that, that they're looking and they're perceiving, they see an action and they're just reproducing that action without really much thought to it, right? But what we're finding from research is that it's particular to certain kinds of actions, right? So if I see mom jump up and down, I'm not necessarily duplicating that action. What they're finding is it's much more driven by the mouth and looking at mouth-based actions and hand, right? Um, so now the argument is that baby is not just a focus on all actions of mom. Baby is really focused on mom's mouth and looking at how that mouth is moving, whether it's in terms of the food that the mom is consuming um, or whether it's in terms of language that the mom is producing. And also the baby is attuned to hands, right? The hand that is used to attach to the baby, to right. suit the baby, and so on, right? So if I wave to the baby, babies start to wave, right? Um, and so on. And so this is also the reason why many new parents today are using gestures and signs mm -hmm. to teach young babies, right? Even before they begin speaking, they're doing things like this to say, are you hungry? Are you hungry? Like, do you want some more? Yes or no? And so the argument is, yes, babies are looking at these gestures that are really encoded near the mouth and with their hands, right? So there's a whole body that says they're not duplicating all types of behaviors. They're just specifically mirroring behaviors that deal with the mouth and that deal with the hands. Could it be also, I mean, because that's where your your socialization is, right? I mean, typically the way we socialize or engage with someone has to do with the way we're speaking. If we're frowning, if we're smiling, you're going to get some kind of like emotional charge. You're going to kind of know what's going on with me. If I'm using gestures when I'm talking to you, um, it, it, could it also have to do with that social emotional bond where it's like, this is where I'm learning how to attach. And I, of course, want to believe that it's because there's this great love and emotional bond. And I get that they're kind of like, you know, they're learning. I, I joked that my daughter was like a little cave baby when she was born and the emotions came later. Um, but it's just kind of interesting to me that it's all of the things that would tell you how someone feels. Yes. And the argument is that they can't communicate, right? They can't produce language per se, and that this is a form of communication mm -hmm. and that there's this reciprocal back and forth that occurs between that adult caretaker and that infant. Um, and this also gets into this notion of if that infant didn't do that behavior, then they're not going to survive in the environment and they're right. going to perish. It gets right. into the human evolution question, right? Why do babies cry? 
We don't know exactly, but that's the only way they can communicate their needs, right? It's one of the ways in which they can tell the adults, there's something going on, I need your help. And then if babies didn't cry, they would just perish and die. Um, so it gets into this notion of where did this come from over thousands of years of human development, right? Right. Um, but what's interesting is that there's been plenty of studies that also said, okay, well, let's let's look at this differently, right? So let's see if adults do this as well. And that's where the research gets really kind of interesting. So there are a lot of you know studies that have looked at, for example, I might start playing with my earring and then you, Jeanette, might start doing the same, right? right. So is it just about infants learning certain kind of behaviors that are, that's going to allow them to develop over time? Or is this something that we're wired for and we're not even just conscious of, right? Mm -hmm. So there's been plenty of studies that have looked at, for example, two people sitting across from each other, having a conversation, they're looking at each other, one person plays with the hair, and the next thing you know, the other person not thinking at all about what they're doing starts to mirror that particular action. They perceive it, they see it, and they imitate it, especially behaviors related to the mouth and then related to their hands, right? So if you you and I are in a coffee shop and you grab your mug and you take a sip, I'm more likely to grab my mug and take a sip, right? Mm -hmm. People also argue this is what yawning is. Like if you yawn, mm -hmm. the mouth movement, right? That I will start yawning as well and that I'm imitating this particular behavior. Some of it could be because, once again, attachment, right? I see you, I know you, you and I are emotionally connected in this moment, right? We're developing social skin together and we're bonding in many ways by doing so. And it gets even more kind of interesting in terms of uh, when you look at people having affairs, like there's this a whole mother body of work that looks at why do people have affairs? And if mm -hmm. they do have affairs, oftentimes it's with a mirror of their initial partner. So if you look at people in the news who've had affairs, if you look at Bruce Springsteen, for example, had an affair with another woman who was just an imitation of his wife, right? She was also a redheaded woman, slightly younger oftentimes. And the argument is <laughs> part of our human brain says, okay, I, I mated with this woman. I had children with her. I did well with that. So I'm now going to look for a mirror of her. But it's rarely that we tend to cheat on uh, our spouses or our partners with someone who's not a mirror of our partner, right? The argument is we know through human evolution that this partner worked for me and who they are. They create children, maybe not, but then I'm just going to go ahead and then have another affair with someone who's just a mirror of that person, right? Which is always kind of amazing to me. Like, you don't look for somebody who's the opposite. Uh, you look for someone who's kind of similar, um, so where did that come from? So all these kinds of adult behaviors that we know, like if, if I see someone mistreating someone, do I do that and then simply mirror the actions, right? So this gets a bit complicated in terms of, so there's still a lot of research that still yeah. needs to be done. Like, am I simply just imitating someone, especially as an adult, and you've formed certain types of logical ways of thinking that should kick in before you then just simply imitate someone, right? Not only is Live Like a Life Coach in your pocket, but we have coaches in 3D as well. With our most recent upgrade, you can sign up for one-on-one -on -one coaching with a person on the phone who will hold you down, hold you accountable, and offer you perspective as you build your big, bad, beautiful new life. Apple users can sign up for our Premium Plus plan through the app or check out our next level and mastery options at loveisviral.com forward slash coaching. Android users, we haven't forgotten about you. Live Coaching is available to you as well. 
Just reach out to us at dearlive at loveisviral.com and we'll fill you in on all the ways Liv can create with you. Liv Pocket Coach, welcome to your life. Well, one of the questions I have is because, you know, you mentioned like our brain is the largest it's ever been, right? And that it kind of grows with where we are in society or how our needs change or what have you. But then I've heard a lot of people talk about how we have a two million year old reptilian brain that's either fight or flight. And we have to learn these mindfulness ah. techniques that help us to move into more awareness and what have you. Um, but it sounds like in this conversation that it's kind of a mixture of both. There's there's probably more conscious awareness, but it sounds like sometimes that that the desire to survive or that primal reptilian brain, as it's been referred to, is still alive and kicking. Like it's still trying to ensure our survival. It's still trying to ensure that we remain a part of a pack. Um, mm-hmm. it was so funny. My daughter was telling me the other day that she, she's like, do you know why the dog comes into the bathroom with me? Because she's protecting me because when dogs like through evolution, when they rove in packs and one of them is using the bathroom or giving birth, they all kind of surround to make sure that they're safe. And it was just so funny to me. Cause I'm like, there's some things that are so instinctual, mm-hmm. granted different species, but so instinctual to us that to me, it sounds like they ensure survival. But I'm curious what your take is with those two kind of schools of thought. Well, it's interesting because we do know that me marrying you tells everybody that you and I are of the same tribe. So I do agree that we probably over time learn to marry each other's actions and behaviors so that we can stay intact in a tribal form, right? Because otherwise we would die. If I Mm -hmm. lived by myself as an individual I would not live very long. I need a communal society for me to be able to go on to that next generation, right? To be able to create children and move on to the next generation and so on. So we do know that human beings are wired to live in these kind of communal tribes and that we want to continue to evolve as a species. So we're gonna continue to be in these kind of collective tribal societies, right? And today what we're finding is this is probably one of the biggest challenges in the United States because Today, an individual in the United States can literally survive without much human contact at all, right? Mm -hmm. I could work from home and I could Zoom, maybe not. I could code from my computer. I might order my meals and my meals get left at the door. And I can truly survive without much human contact. But is that what's best for society? And I think we're at a crossroads right now in the United States as to like how, how much of individualism Um, are we going to allow and tolerate and how much of we as a communal society has to kick in. So this pandemic is a classic example, right? We're all on lockdown and there are a lot of us who are saying, no, you know what? I, the individual, have a right to go out and to do what I want to do. But then Mm -hmm. there's this communal part that says that you can't do that because you're going to affect that herd, right? And and that you're going to affect all of us and it's going to have this exponential effect on we as a human society. And so we're really much at that same kind of crossroads of, you know, do we allow that individual uh, to, to, to live as to how she or he wants to, or do we all have to be a part of our tribe? If I'm going to put on a mask, you should put on a mask, right? So that we mirror each other so that we can um, become a part of a tribe that's going to protect itself. So that's really interesting. Challenging. Yeah. Well, and I, I've had a lot of people like I did a um I did an episode where I um, interviewed a, a couple that's married that are also relationship coaches, right? And we had this conversation about kind of surviving 
um, quarantine with your spouse and what that looks like, because there's a lot of opportunity for growth, um, a lot of conversations being had, a lot of triggers, right? And I had so many people comment, like, what about the single people? It is so hard for us. We are so isolated. And I've taken on a few clients lately who their biggest thing has been like, I'm so isolated. I'm so depressed, right? So there are those, those introverts who are probably like, I can work from home. I'm good. But even myself as an introvert, I miss my friends. I miss that community. I miss sitting across from someone and feeling the energy as you lean in and mirror and talk and commune that I think it's, it's really interesting as to like what part evolution plays, what part technology plays, right. you know, in the way we look in the future. That is a great question because we know from technology that the human brain is actually decreasing in size. So people have actually seen within the last few decades that it's decreasing in size and matter and density. What's interesting, though, is that let's go back to that infant, right? That infants need to attach, to feel secure, to feel a sense of physical security and stability. Uh, we need that throughout our lives, not just in our early years, that adults need that sense of human attachment, to feel validated, right? And oftentimes it's the mirroring of somebody else. It's the mirroring of another biological creature that cell that has the same type of cell architecture that I do. It's not a robot, right? It's not an inflatable doll <laughs> that's going to give so me that pleasure. <laughs> I've yeah. seen like some of these videos of these new robots and like the guys are like, this is great. And I'm like, this is heading in a really yeah. tragic direction, but I'm curious because um, this is one of the things that's very interesting to me. Like we talked about how, especially as a child, they're mirroring. There's not a whole lot of thought behind it. Um, when does empathy come into play? Like I know some of our social and emotional, like just the, the sheer desire to connect has a lot to do with our survival, but yeah. I think empathy plays such a huge role into who we are as humans and how we relate to one another. When does that start to kick in? That's a great question. So around three, four, and five, young children develop what we call a theory of mind. They're able to mentally think about not only their own desires, but also the desires of other human beings. But before that, they're very egocentric. So if you've mm -hmm. ever raised a two-year-old and those two-year-old two tantrum tantrums are all about me, 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 right? Yeah. So young children are very egocentric. And then around three, four, and five, they develop the ability to take on the perspectives of others, right? So there was a famous experiment done by Alison Gopnik called, you know, fish crackers versus broccoli. And you as a researcher would say to the child, you know, I really love broccoli. Can you give me some broccoli? And you and the child are sitting at the table and there's a bowl of broccoli and there's a bowl of crackers. The child knows that broccoli is awful. It's horrible, right? And so a child that hasn't reached this stage would say, you don't want broccoli, you want crackers. I love fish crackers. You should also love fish crackers too. Mm -hmm. And then as the child gets older, then they're like, look, I love fish crackers, but I know that Jeanette loves broccoli, so I'm going to give her broccoli. I understand her wants and desires, and so I will try to give that sense of empathy, right? I can share your perspective. I understand you want broccoli, even though it's not my own. I nonetheless will push that bowl of broccoli towards you, right? So we call mm -hmm. this a theory of mind, a young child's ability to understand the wants, desires, and needs of a human being other than her or himself. And it's this pivotal moment where children develop this notion of empathy. 
And so there were also experiments done where you might be with a four-year-old and I might walk in and I might drop my purse and that four-year-old's gonna run over and try to grab mommy's purse and, and give it back to mommy, right? Or oftentimes I remember, you know, if I had a horrible day and I'm crying in the kitchen, my young children will come up to me and try to comfort me, right? And they're gonna right. show empathy in that way as well, right? Because they understand that mommy's not feeling good. Um, doesn't happen when they're adolescents, by the way, because it disappears. No, oh no. <laughs> but the argument here is that's when young children understand that this is how mommy's feeling. Um, mm -hmm. And if she's happy, I'm going to be happy and so on, right? The question is that empathy, is that marrying? So it gets into this kind of tricky question, right? So people argue that empathy is a totally different realm of cognition than marrying. Marrying is really about physical imitation, it's about stimulus response, it's about mouth movements and hand movements, right? It's something that we're wired for as a young age and may continue in different forms over time. But empathy is something that's more connected to this idea of theory of mind, this ability for us to step out of ourselves, to take on the perspective of somebody other than us, right? Mm -hmm. And then to then perhaps take actions. So if you look at those three terms right there, sympathy is this notion of, I see someone who's homeless on the street, I feel bad for them, but I'm not, I don't really know what it feels like. Empathy is like, oh, I see someone who's homeless on the street, I was poor myself, I know what that feels like, I can empathize with that person, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the person who pulls down the window and gives them money, who's doing something altruistic. They're cognizant of the fact this person is going through a hard time. I know what it feels like, but I'm actually going to do a physical action to then demonstrate that intention mm -hmm. that I have. So the kids do these questions of intentionality, right? So when you empathize with someone, are you necessarily mirroring something or are you actually doing something that's much more action oriented, that's much more intentionality driven, right? And where does that come from? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a classic example. I remember taking the train in New Jersey a few years ago, and there was an elderly woman who uh, was Latina, and she was an immigrant. She fell down, and she, um, she fell down right at the crack of the doorway, and the whole train had to stop, right? And the whole train stopped. They had to call the medics. I went over immediately and tried to comfort her, and I, st I knew and she was Spanish-speaking, so I went and started using my own Spanish-speaking ability to but then I remember I turned around and everybody in that train, I was the only person in the train that ran to her and tried to comfort her, right? And so that is the form of empathy, this notion of, I know what it feels like to have fallen. I'm going to come over. But then it gets to this altruism, like I'm going to come over and then actually take actions, right? Mm -hmm. There might be other people who are sitting in the train and empathize with her and say, oh, God, it's so horrible. I hate, I mean, my dad had that happen. I get it. You know, people right. fall. But then there are some people who had sympathetic, like, oh, this is so bad for her. I hope she's, she'll be okay. And there are also people who are like angry. I'm late for work. <laughs> and we're like, had no, no connection to her at all. Yeah. Right. So there's like a whole wide range of actions that occur. And so there's a question of where does empathy come from? Right. So a lot of, there's a whole argument that says that, okay, if I see Samina go over and try to help this other woman, maybe I will too, right? Maybe Jeanette will get up and say, I will do it too. I'm going to, I saw Samina do it. I'm going to mirror that action. So there's some of that that can occur, right? So some of us will say, if someone fell on the street and one person goes over to help, you will probably automatically go and try to 
mirror that sure. uh, uh, same actions, right? But not always the case. Um, and some people say, this is silly. It's not magical thinking. Like if someone goes over to help somebody, by magic, do we all run over and try to help that person? No. So where does sympathy and where does empathy in particular come from? There's a lot of argument that it's socially driven. How your yeah. family was raised, it's your culture. Well, and that's what I was going to ask too, because I feel like sometimes our level of empathy and our desire for action also could be um, nurture, right? Because yeah. I know that it's important for me to instill compassion and philanthropy in my child, right? And so I show her examples of things or tough situations or, you know, we we sponsored a child who's she and her mother had been taken out of an abusive home and we made sure that we got her some bedding as she moved into a new apartment and we did this and we did that. And so my daughter was able to see that someone needed help, right? And that was kind of a, a nurture situation. But I'm curious from your perspective, especially with what's happening right now, right? We see empathy, sympathy, and altruism across the board happening in all manner of ways. And I'm choosing to, to focus on those and not the people who are angry and upset and, and what have you right now, but the people who are singing from their balconies and sharing food with others and staying home and making masks and sending them out to their neighbors and sharing food from their garden. Um, because there's this, we all get it. We're all in the same boat and we all have the desire to survive and to make sure the people around us are okay. And I'm, I'm curious when you talk, when you think of human evolution and this, like, it feels like a, an inflection point right now. Mm -hmm. um, where do you think that we're heading? Like, do you feel like this is a step in human evolution and in the way we work together as, as people, or is this just part of the, the way things have been? And this is just the first time we've experienced it. That's a great question. And I think you hit at one of the keywords survival, right? So when we look at this, like over time, thousands of years ago, human beings were in these tribes. But the research shows that the tribes that showed empathy, mm. that showed care, that showed love for each other are the ones that survived. And that the tribes who didn't ended up killing each other and perishing. Mm. So we have like two ways to go about this. We can destroy each other and kill each other and perish. And there have been many cultures, for example, who end up on an island and there is, they just don't get along and they ended up killing each other and perishing. And there goes that entire species. Mm -hmm. So we know over time that species have just been, you know, obliterated, even within the homo species, you know, different variations of homo beings, that there's been um, the whole annihilation or extinction of a particular species. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what caused that? And we know from warfare, uh, brutality towards each other, um, uh, hoarding food and so that others don't get food, right? Uh, hoarding food, water, all the ways and others just perish. Uh, so we know through human history that those tribes that cared for each other, that showed love, that showed attachment, is what allowed that next generation to continue and to be healthy. And, you know, there's this whole field of research called epigenetics, which I think mm -hmm. is fascinating. The argument of that love that you show to your tribe carries on 14 generations thereafter, wow. right? So what I do today right now with this particular tribe of people that I'm in with will have an effect, which we just recently discovered. Mm -hmm. This notion of what happened to us 14 generations ago, whether that's slavery, colonialism, genocide, 
still impacting us today that we're somehow wired by things that happened to our ancestors generations ago. Um, and just as we faced dire, awful situations and we persevered and we developed resilience, we also developed a sense of empathy. So I thought about that moment that I helped that woman on the track and I thought, what caused it? Is it because of my immigrant ancestry and immigrants are collective people and we, we have to put ourselves aside and put everyone in it together? Or is it the fact, I remember like a moment that I had in early childhood where uh, we were recently, we recently immigrated to the United States and this man literally died on the sidewalk in front of us. And I remember my, my family, like all surrounding him, holding his hand. Meanwhile, like, Americans were walking right past him. And I thought about that moment and I thought, okay, is it because I had this moment with my family mm -hmm. that was triggered in this moment when I saw this woman fall, which then led me to kind of respond in that way, right? Um, so the more and more the empathy research is showing that it, it has to do more with how you've been raised, mm. looking at the social conditions and environments in which you've been raised, it's looking at the role that your family played, the role that your culture played, right? In developing that sense of empathy, that this is not something that we are mirroring um, because otherwise that would be what a lot of researchers say is magical thinking. Mm -hmm. It's magical. It wouldn't it be wonderful if we all kind of mirrored each other and, and, and really truly helped each other all the time, but that's not always the case, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it goes back to so much to that, social environment that you create, the conditions that you create to allow that baby to have a very healthy attachment to the adults in his or her world, right? Whether it's the maternal caretaker or whether it's the teacher, whether it's um, other members of society that say to the child, like, yes, you're loved, we love you, you're worthy, we're going to protect you. But it's that sense of security mm -hmm. um, and safety that allows that child to then understand that I can then do that to others, right? Healthy attachment at a young age then leads to you having healthy attachments at a later age as well. So some of this is, goes back to that question, like the people who didn't get up, I mean, where was their sense of attachment? Do they feel that sense of intimacy and security as a young child? And it's really kind of complicated when you start to unpack this all, right? Why are some people much more empathetic than others? Um, but there's also kind of research going back to, are we more empathetic towards people from our own tribe? So if this person was of a different racial background or gen different gender, like, did I run up to her because I saw that she was an immigrant woman just like me, mm -hmm. which caused me to get up and help her? Or if she was of a different race or if she was a man and not a woman, like, so there's all this research in the sense of we are empathetic, we're wired for empathy, but we might be doing it more for people from our tribe, people who look like us, right? And, mm -hmm. and sound like us. And so that gets kind of really tricky. And so they, there has been research also done on mirror neurons and do we tend to imitate someone who looks just like us? Will we imitate someone who's from a different racial background or different gender background? And the research actually shows that we don't tend to mirror, mirror that as much as someone who, who's from our tribe, right? Yeah. It gets into this notions of, are we wired for that? And is that bias? And is that bias something we can undo? Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the things that's bothered me so much over the course of this is, is seeing how much implicit bias there is within our entire global. The United States has been put on under a microscope with what's happening. And you even have people from other countries like 
saying like, we're sorry for you. Like for the very first time, we see how much um, racial bias and cultural and, and every single flaw that we've ever had generationally seems like it's just been put under. And it, it has felt that way, I think, every day for so many people. Um, but it feels like it's really been um, blown wide open. And that's like one of the things that makes me so sad because like on this platform, I so want to talk about why we need to work with our children to make sure generationally we're creating a, com a completely different message, right? Um, right? I thought about like with my daughter, um, I grew up believing that I was unlovable. I had a tough childhood. And when I had my daughter, I never wanted her to feel that way. So I made sure to mirror not things that I knew, but things that I would have wanted, right? So I wanted to show her affection and show her healthy attachment with a parent figure and show her all these things. And it was so funny because one day I asked her, I was like, what do you think your superpower is? And she was like, I'm so lovable. And I was like, yes, like I ended that. So 14 generations will hopefully believe that they are lovable and worthy and have healthy attachments with their children. Um, but then when you get into some of the deeper, darker aspects of our society, right. I'm like, I don't, I, I wish I had the magic salve, but it's like, there's so much work that needs to be done even within families, even, even realizing what bias there is that we don't even recognize, we don't even see, you know? Right. But it's a kind of a fascinating concept, right? So the argument is that we're going to help people from our own tribe because they're like us. And if I help you and you're from my tribe, you'll help me, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've lived like that for thousands and thousands of years. Um, but then all of a sudden we started interacting with people from different tribes and it gets into this notion of flight versus fight, right? Are you my enemy or are you my friend? Yeah. And so there have been moments where tribes get together and they coalesce together and there are times the tribes fight and they kill each other off, right? But what's interesting is that we're used to seeing differences in human beings, but to a certain degree. The United States is unlike any other country in the world. The amount of racial diversity, even a place like New York City, mm -hmm. it's so immense that our brains are not wired for it yet. So there's a whole other argument that says that this idea of heterogeneous communities in which so many different types of languages and races and cultures come together and live together is just a recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And that our brain is still stuck in this ancient world of flight versus fight, like you're in my tribe or you're not in my tribe, right. that we haven't adapted our brains to this idea that heterogeneity is the norm now, and that we have to rewire ourselves. And I think the work that, young, that we're doing with young children in particular is amazing because we've got to wire young children to look at heterogeneity as the norm, that mm -hmm. you are my tribe, right? How do you get them to see that people who look differently from them and sound differently for them are of the same ilk, yeah. right? And that's the challenges. And it's gotten much better than when I was a kid. I think today's generation is starting to open up to the fact that I'm just like you. You and I look different. We may speak differently, but we're of the same tribe. And yeah. that is what's going to cause us to, to, to really rewire our brain, literally neurologically rewire our brain. 
Yeah. I've had to realize over the course of, because I, I can get frustrated, right? Like I do all of this stuff and I speak and I, I'm like, I want to, and then you watch the news or you hear a, something terrible or tragic that's happened and you're like, is this ever going to change? And I think one of the things I'm taking away from this today is like, you can affect what's going to happen in the future. It may not change in my lifetime, but I have an influence generationally on how um, how we evolve and, and, and hopefully we're all kind of doing our part. I'm, I'm curious because, you know, this entire platform is of the mindset that you have to kind of work on yourself, your own stories, your own bias, your own, um, uh, the lies that you've told yourself, right? And really mm-hmm. come to love yourself, um, flaws and awe, um, and then carry that forward, right? The concept that love is viral. That, what, what do you think that we have to do in order to make that concept? Like, what do you do in your daily life in order to make that happen? I think one of the most important things that I tell my students and I tell myself is love is about repair. Mm-hmm. That all of us have awful moments with people and we sever these attachments. But what we know about human beings is that they can repair those attachments, Right. And that you might have had an awful day with your spouse or your children. And then the next day you wake up and go, okay, I'm going to start a new. We're going to start, I'm sorry um, what I did. And let's start fresh and start a new day. And that's mm-hmm. what love really is. It's your ability to be humble and to say to yourself, um, I have an attachment here that I need to repair. And yeah. it might be severed, but how do I go back and, and gain redemption? in that moment. And mm. people who've gone through trauma their entire lives, you know, eventually do end up repairing those attachments and eventually become healthier. But it's not until you can repair it that you can you can, you can move forward. Oh, I love that. I think that's really beautiful. I think it's it's so valuable in in our relationships as well as with ourselves. And um a beautiful reflection. I want to thank you so much for everything that you've shared. It's been fascinating. I have like all of these words written down that I want to study. I'm, I've, I've heard of and I've, I've dabbled a little bit in epigenetics and now I'm more curious. And um, I just want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your heart. And I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks you as well. Thank you so much for joining today. I got goosebumps when Samina shared that the tribes that showed empathy were the ones who survived. Wrap your heart around that fact and get to spreading the love. You can find Samina at SaminaHadiTabasam.com or on Twitter at SaminaHadiTabas. As always, please subscribe, leave a review, and don't forget to share with your friends. We are always interested in content that uplifts, so if you have ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at dearlive at loveisviral.com. You can also find us on Instagram at loveisviral.media or visit our website at loveisviral.com. Apple users, don't forget to give the Live Pocket Coach a try by downloading it for free for seven days.